right. You're coming through a little hot. A little hot? All right. I, can... I think that's the term. I get... Nope. Cool. All right. Is that better? That's much better. Cool. Cool. Um, yes. Definitely the new Beyonce. I'm not like a Beyonce believer or anything like that. It is just... It is an unusually... I've had it on repeat uh, for like two days now. Ooh. That's the sign of a good album. It's just like... And it's so different. Every track is different. Um, so many different genres and even without like there's an, there is definitely a, a, a lot of messages going on and I haven't even listened to it on that level just in terms of like good listening uh, it's awesome cool um, so uh, like we sort of talked about in in uh, slack I think we'll do uh, do a quick little intro uh, and work our way towards that that sort of concept that we were talking about sound good perfect I I made notes you made notes Good, you're prepared. I love it. <laughs> I'm super, super excited to be joined by my friend Kai Davis today. Kai, how you doing? Doing incredibly well. So excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. You are probably the most cheerful person in my life. <laughs> and, I'm touched. And today in Philadelphia is a gray day. It's been like Seattle all week long. So just to have a little bit of Kai Davis, uh, Kai Davis happiness in, in today for me is good. And, and for the folks that are listening, I think it's going to be good as well. Uh, Kai, you know, one of the things that I like to do when we kick off the, these episodes, especially for those people who don't know you, um, I want to know how, how you introduce yourself at parties. So not necessarily something where people know about what you do for business. Like, how do you, how do you explain what you do? How, how do you describe yourself? How do you introduce yourself at parties? Good question. So I usually, when the cocktail party scenario, somebody says like, hey, what do you do? Who are you? Why are you standing in line? I'm like, oh, I'm Kai Davis. I'm an outreach consultant. And the, the response I always get is outreach consultant. What the hell is that? I've never heard of that before. And I was really intentional about picking that as a title because it sparks those sort of moments. If I said I'm an SEO consultant, they'd be like, I know what that is. But when I say outreach consultant, they're like, I've never heard of that before. Tell me more about it. And then I'm able to go into, well, hey, what I do was like digital public relations. I help, you know, product creators and consultants promote their best content online and grow an audience. And suddenly they have this aha moment where they go like, oh, okay, cool. I can see like what an outreach consultant is and how it's this new take on this thing and who you work with. And it basically lets me move from this is, uh, uh, you know, the job description, SEO consultant to, okay, now you understand who I am, who I work with, the problems I solve. And it, I think it creates a referable moment. That's super interesting. So you just described sort of three different titles that it sounds like you could theoretically fall under any, any of them, which is SEO, search engine optimization, which is about helping people find your stuff online. PR, which is mm -hmm. combination of online, offline, but also about getting the word out about a thing that you're doing, that you have, that you want to invite people to make them aware of. And then this thing that you, you're calling outreach consulting. I get that why you'd want to call it something different to spark that conversation. But when PR and SEO are such known terms, why would you abandon them to go to something that you then have to go ahead and explain? And we're going to get you to explain exactly what an outreach consultant does in just a second. But I'm curious if there's a particular reason other than sparking a conversation that you would leave those things behind. Absolutely. And it, it actually is a funny story. Uh, I was describing myself as an SEO consultant for about two years when I was doing primarily SEO consulting. And I get on a call one day with a prospect, came through my website, filled out a form, wanted to work with me, saw my prices. We get on a phone call just to, you know, qualify each other, make sure we're a good fit. The first thing they say to me is, 
Kai, I just want to let you know, there's two things I hate, lawyers and SEO consultants. And this is a guy who wants to hire me for SEO. And I realized in that moment, people know what an SEO consultant is. People know what a public relations consultant is. But because it's such a known phrase, there's so much baggage associated with it. If I say, oh, I'm an SEO consultant, people will say, oh, it's $500 a month. You'll get me to the top of Google, blah, 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 blah. I wanted to distance myself from the preconceptions and preconceived notions that people had about the outcomes I could help them achieve. And the best way I could figure to do that was switching what title I chose to identify with. So we spark those moments where I say, like, I'm an outreach consultant. People are like, I have no clue what on earth that is. Explain that for me. Okay. Now you have to explain what that is. (laughs) So an outreach consultant, I frame it as I help my clients uh, build relationships and manage their most valuable relationships. So in a sense, it's really drawing on both of the other disciplines we touched on, search engine optimization, link building, public relations. But I put it all under the umbrella of, well, we're focused on building relationships. And maybe that's a relationship with another influencer or authority in your industry, somebody who has a large audience. Maybe it's building relationships with members of your audience. But the process of outreach I see as initiating these conversations with people, engaging in a dialogue with them, finding out opportunities to help them that in turn promote your best content. So as an outreach consultant, I help my clients manage this process of getting in touch with you know their peers or their colleagues or people who are in their audience and say, well, how could we work together? How could we share something that's valuable for you and your peers or your audience? What is the beginning of working with somebody in that capacity actually look like? Somebody is presumably coming to you wanting to accomplish something. What kinds of things are people trying to accomplish? Is it trying to get products out there, trying to get you know, guest appearances? What kind of outreach, you know, what is the outcome of the outreach that you're actually doing? The outcome of the outreach I help my clients with is landing podcast appearances, getting guest article placements, coordinating joint venture webinars with other partners in their industry, promoting their most popular products or content. I've done a good amount of work in the e-commerce space, and there it's building relationships with bloggers and saying, hey, you know, we have a great brand. We have an exciting product. You have a cool audience. How could we work together? What would be exciting for your audience? When it's somebody who's selling an educational course or a consultant who's selling their knowledge, it's saying, well, what audience are we trying to reach? How could we get you on a podcast that reaches your target market? How could we set up a joint venture webinar where we could get 300 people who are potential clients attending? So it's sort of identifying these opportunities and then coordinating and manifesting them for the client. All right. I'm putting myself in the shoes, not necessarily of the person who's your client, mm-hmm. uh, although uh, maybe we'll get to that in just a second. I'm thinking about the person who you're doing the outreach to, right? So that sort of upstream person who you're trying to you know, connect with them, uh, build this relationship, uh, earn their trust ultimately is sort of what I'm reading between the lines here is you're trying to do is get them to want to pay attention to you and, and actually trust them and like whatever you're bringing to the table. Like, If I'm a busy person with a big audience, I'm probably getting hit up 10, 20, 50 times a week or maybe a day. Who knows? A, how do you stand out from all of the other people who are hitting that person up? And B, what kind of response do you get? Like when somebody gets that initial contact, are they – they're like, hey, other person who I've never heard of. Like how how do you overcome that hurdle? Overcoming that, so let's tackle that one first. Overcoming that hurdle, 
takes a decent amount of due diligence research up front. Uh, we've all, listeners, you, me, anybody who's listening to this included, have been on the receiving side of a bad outreach email. Hello, I'd love to SEO your website. Here is my link. And it's oh, all yeah. me focused. What I found is by doing research beforehand, understanding who the person I'm trying to initiate contact with is, and framing my communication to be very you-focused. So saying like, you built up a wonderful audience, Alex. You have like an engaged list. You have people who love what you're creating with Stacking the Bricks, of 35500, with Year of the Hustle. It's awesome, it's amazing. I'd love to find a way to add more value to your audience. Here's three ideas of like projects we might be able to work on together or things I might be able to contribute. Does one of these sound valuable to your audience? So I'm trying to frame everything in terms of the value to the person I'm talking with and their audience. No mention should be made of what the value or outcome, the positive outcome is for me. I want to frame it entirely of this is valuable for you, this is valuable for your audience, and this is how it can be even more valuable for your audience and start the relationship on that foot, really a giving versus taking approach. There's something subtle you did in there as well, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about. You presented more than one option. Is there a reason for that? I'm a big fan in outreach and communication of presenting a choice of yeses. It's a concept that I took from the consulting space. When you send a client a proposal, you don't want it to just be like, option A, you could work with me, since that just presents a binary choice of work with them or not. What I like to do is present in outreach, in pitching, and even when I'm pitching somebody to be on a podcast saying, well, hey, here's three different choices, three different topics, three opportunities for us to work together. Which one of these sounds great? So now it's a choice of A, B, or C, or some hodgepodge mixture of them instead of work with Kai, don't work with Kai. And I found by switching my outreach to focus on a choice of yeses, it's really improved the response rate because people now say like, well, hey, none of these are quite the right fit, but I like this part of A and this part of C. Can we put them together and make something new? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's do that. So there's a little bit of choice architecture in here. Entirely. It always reminds me of the the thing where you, you go to send a kid to bed. It's do you want to go to bed in 10 minutes or 15 minutes? It doesn't matter which one you choose. You're going to bed at some point in the next 15 minutes. So that's that's super, super smart. Well, I would love to, if you're up for it, turn the tables a little bit and put myself in the shoes of someone that you would work with to give the folks that are listening to Stacking the Bricks a taste of how you would actually go through the steps to think about doing this kind of outreach that you do. And for the example, Amy and I just launched, you mentioned this in, in a moment before, the Year of Hustle. Um, so yearofhustle.com is this cheat sheet, sort of a roadmap for going from I've never shipped a product that I charge money for in my life to the very first brick stacked in your business. And the feedback on this since we launched yesterday afternoon has been amazing, really, really amazing. But there's one thing that we're not entirely sure how we're going to approach, and that's how do we get this in front of people that aren't already in our sphere. So if I were to come to you and we were to go through our own due diligence dialogue and I would say, Kai, I really like your approach and style, this approach of building trust and relationships first, actually earning the opportunity to be in front of somebody else's audience, you take a look at Year of Hustle and where would we go from here? I think the first question we'd start with is saying, and like I, I love the idea of engaging in this dialogue for the listeners. Uh, I think the first question we start with is, let's talk about the problem that Year of Hustle as a product solves. So, how would you answer that question? 
So a lot of folks, I think, look at starting a business, whether that is to replace their entire income or have some extra income on the side or really anywhere in between. They look at it as sort of an all or nothing type game. It's a big win or nothing at all. And I think most people just psych themselves out and they never look at the small achievable step that could be right in front of them. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve is to show people what that first step might actually be. And Amy was able to break down not just the first step, but the first 12 weeks, or you could do it months if you wanted to. The timeline is not strictly defined, but we wanted to give sort of a step-by-step, here's how to reverse engineer the goal. And in this case, we took the goal of $10,000 because it is a non-trivial amount of money, but it is also a completely achievable amount of money for anyone who has creative skills. If you've ever sold a consulting contract, if you've ever gotten a job in a creative field, you have the skills to earn $10,000 creating and selling something in that way. So we wanted to give people the roadmap, basically, I think to do two things. One is to get over the psyching out part. Like people really like psychologically freak out because they never break it into smaller steps. And then once we've got them thinking that way, actually give them step by step, this is what you do, this is what you need, and here's how to get it type instructions. Even if it's just to get their heads in the frame of mind of, wow, this previously unachievably large goal suddenly has a clear next step, first several next steps actually, and I can actually do this. Perfect, perfect. The the way I typically approach it with clients is similar to the 30 by 500 methodology of we start with a target market, we understand the pains that they're experiencing, we create a solution that solves those pains and then we present that to the target market and they're like, wow, this is, you know, this solves the issue I've had. And so we've essentially already done that with, or you've essentially already done that with Year of Hustle. You understand who this is for, you understand the issue they're facing, you've created this product to help them overcome that issue. And now we're saying, well, how do we go one step further and reach new audiences with this? It's one thing to promote it to our friends and our immediate colleagues. It's another to reach a whole new sphere of people. That's right. What I would recommend is a couple different approaches. We could first look at immediately similar audiences and say, well, who else is helping people solve this problem and how could we cooperatively work with them? How could we add more value to it. One thing I've run into as a challenge with content promotion is if, let's say, I create a guest article or a cheat sheet or a worksheet, I could promote it to one person. But as soon as I go to that second person and say, hey, I got this cheat sheet, they're like, well, I already saw it over on Bob's site. What's unique and new about this? So finding opportunities to add something new, unique, and valuable. Maybe it's something co-branded. Maybe it's doing a webinar or a podcast episode with the Year of Hustle as a content upgrade. So for each person's audience, it's not just, hey, it's the thing you saw last time, but, oh, hey, there's this exciting and new and unique thing for my audience. Now we're able to take it to that next step and provide something of value, the Year of Hustle cheat sheet. Another opportunity that comes to mind is looking for people who've built up large audiences, but there's a subset of that audience that would be an ideal candidate who have this problem that Year of Hustle solves for them. So I think of our mutual friend, Brennan Dunn. He has a large audience of freelancers. A subset of those freelancers are saying, ah, gee, I love freelancing, but I want to launch a product or I want to do what Brennan has done and elevate myself out of consulting. Well, 
It might not be that his entire audience is a good fit for this product, but a smaller subset of the audience is. So working with an influencer in that way and saying, well, what part of your audience would be looking for information like this? How could we work together to promote this, create an interesting event around it, you know, a webinar, a podcast episode, something else, and expose it just to those smaller segment of the best buyers in your audience for this product? So in the case of Brennan, which I think, again, is a, is a great example, and it's an easy win for us because obviously Brennan's a friend and a, a former student for that matter. You know, I, I agree that there's a you know, Brennan has students running the full spectrum and he has products that sort of align to that where there's the here's how to get into freelancing. Here's how to level up in freelancing. And then there's an upper band of people that have sort of gone through all of Brennan's steps and say, OK, I've gotten good at this. What's my next move? Let's say we weren't friends with Brennan. How would you recommend that we would approach Brennan? Because right now it's as easy as sending a message on Slack and saying, hey, let's do something together. But if we were to approach someone like Brennan, if there was no, no pre-existing relationship um, and maybe even no awareness of each other, how would you help us cold approach Brennan and his audience, knowing what you know about him and knowing what you know about us? Step one is to immediately provide value to the person you're trying to build that relationship with. So it's doing it unsolicited and it's doing it out of generosity, even if nothing may come of it. So uh, it might be realizing, oh, Brennan's just, you know, released a new version of W Freelancing, right? His, his one of his main products writing up a review of it and emailing Brennan and just being like, hey, Brennan, you know, I, I took double your freelancing rate before. I love it. I saw you have a new version of it. I haven't taken the new version yet, but I wanted to help promote it. So I wrote up this 2000 word review of my experience with your product, with your program, and I shared it out there. Just wanted to let you know. And so suddenly we're able to initiate contact with somebody. We're not asking anything of them, but we're saying, hey, I did this thing and I just wanted to let you know about it. And that's the seed that starts that relationship. So finding opportunities like that, maybe it's tweeting out one of their relevant articles, writing a review of a relevant course, sharing a relevant blog post, but taking efforts to build a relationship where it's focused on giving. I'm giving access. Well, and the thing I love about the example you just gave, actually both of them, is they're essentially like thank you notes, but in a larger capacity and with a, and in and in public in that for that matter. So me saying thank you to someone and that being potentially visible is something that they're going to be able to share. That's a really really great strategy. There's a wonderful book. I always blank on the name. Uh, Robert Cialdini wrote it. Uh, Influence in the Psychology of Persuasion, and he goes through the seven laws the, that are almost hardwired into the human brain that influence how we react to different stimuli. It's almost like a click were response where presented with something and our brain just responds in a specific way. And one of the laws is the law of reciprocity. So when we give something to somebody, they're more likely to respond to a request from us down the line for access or for a favor or for something else. So in the examples we just illustrated by writing a review, sharing the content, writing these thank you notes in public, we're taking advantage of this law in a sense. We're putting something out there. And so we do one, two, maybe three of these types of things. Then we're able to reach out to Brennan and say, hey, Brennan, I've been sharing these things. I just wanted to check in. Have you seen some visitors come across from them? I want to make sure that they're helping you. Oh, yeah, they've been great. I saw some subscribers come through. That's wonderful. Hey, by the way, I'm curious. Are some members of your audience interested in building products? Yeah, you know, I have some freelancers in my audience who are looking to build products. You know, I put together a cheat sheet that helps people get over that hump of building their first product and making that first $10,000. Is it okay if I send you a copy of it to review just to check out and make sure it would work for your audience? This gives them a choice of a yes or no there. Instead of just saying like, hey, here's the PDF, go check it out. 
we're asking for permission. It's almost an escalation of yeses. So we're saying, hey, I'd love to share this with you. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. We're, they're already mentally priming themselves to expect and to want what we're going to share with them. We share the year of hustle cheat sheet with Brennan. He has an opportunity to read it and be like, oh, this is really cool. And now we've built up a decent amount of goodwill. We've shared content. We've written these thank you notes in public. We've built up a relationship. Now we're able to make our first ask. Can we share this with your audience? Would you send out a tweet? Can we co-write a guest post together for your site? And so we've leveled up our engagement, our relationship to the point where it makes sense to make this ask and it's not coming out of nowhere. So there was a really subtle step about asking permission. And I think that's one that people so consistently forget. They just show up and they drop a pile of whatever on your email doorstep, so to speak, and expect you to be ready to look at it. And what you're saying here is that just by asking, hey, I've got something that I, I know is probably a little bit more for you to look at. I, this is going to take time. I appreciate that. Would you be okay with me sending it to you? Just gives them the opportunity to say yes. Or maybe, I mean, somebody says no, what happens then? If somebody says no, well, we're able to say, oh, okay, great, and back away and come back a couple weeks later or a month later. Or we could follow up and say, oh, you know, uh, I realize like it's a big ask, you know, it's like a 12-page PDF. This could take time. You know, there's one section that I think is really, really applicable. Is it okay if I just send you this one page that you could check out? So slimming down the ask to a smaller version as a backup. A no doesn't necessarily, in this context, doesn't necessarily mean, hey, we can't work together in any way. It might be a soft no where they're like hemming and hawing and like, eh, maybe, I don't know, it'll take time, I'm busy, I'm going to a conference. And you're able to follow up with, well, hey, how about this smaller ask? How about, you know, we hop on a five-minute call or I record a five-minute audio thing talking about it and you take a listen to it, finding another way to expose them to that content and see if there's an opportunity to build that relationship. Jumping back one thread to uh, uh, asking permission, I recently worked with a client where one of our goals was to get a testimonial for his book from Seth Godin. And we were like, hey, if we could get this, it would be wonderful. We'd love to have this testimonial. And so I used a process very similar to what we're discussing here, reaching out, engaging, getting a referral. So I came from a place of trust and then emailing Seth and saying, well, hey, uh, one of my colleagues has a book. We think it fits in with about leadership and management. We think it fits in with what you're working on. Is it okay if I send you one chapter that I think is especially relevant because of this recent blog post you wrote and uh, you take a look and let me know if this is something you'd like to give a testimonial for? And because I slimmed it down from, can I send you this 300-page book, K2, can I send you one chapter that I know is going to be valuable because I saw this recent post, it made it a much easier yes. It's a smaller ask. I was able to demonstrate that relevancy and get that yes, send that excerpt across and get that testimonial for the client. But I think shrinking down the ask and making sure we're almost priming, saying like, hey, is it okay if I send this to you first, really makes it easier to build that relationship. So can we recap the steps that you would take up and up until this point from cold outreach? I would even say from identifying someone like Brennan all the way through current. What well, recap the steps for me? Absolutely. Start out, we'd identify them. We'd qualify them, look at their site, look at their recent content, make sure they're a good fit. We might take a look at Brennan's site and see like, oh, wow, he has a category about creating products. Hmm, this seems like a really good fit. Try to build reciprocity, try to build goodwill. So we'd write, a, like you said, a public thank you note, a review, share his articles, find some way to give before we ask and present that goodwill. Then we'd start an outreach process to Brennan saying, well, hey, 
you know, we wrote this blog post, we did this thing, uh, wanted to make sure that it was relevant to you. And then and only then after we've sort of primed the pump with an outpouring of goodwill, an outpouring of generosity, providing value before asking for anything, then we flip the switch and say, hey, I have something that might be relevant to your audience. You write about creating products. I have this thing that seems to align with that. Would it be okay if I shared it with you or shared an excerpt of it with you? That's awesome. So there's an al one more alternate timeline that I'd like to explore and, and get, sort of get your take on. And I'm putting myself sort of in the shoes of, I know some of our students who look at the landscape of other people in their, you know, in their audience and their terrain, their peers, and, the, and they look at other people's products and say, there's already something else out there. Why would I create it? And they essentially, I think in a very subtle way are saying, I don't want to create, turn myself into competition with one of my peers. And I think that declaring yourself as competition is the thing that makes you the competition and, and little more than that. But for the person who doesn't necessarily see that for themselves, you know, how do you help someone get over the idea of reaching out to someone who maybe sells a similar product to them or something in the same category where they might be looking at it and going, why would I reach out to my competitor? They're just going to laugh at me because I'm, you know, I'm their competition. Why would we do something to help each other? How do you, how do you get over that? There's a couple different ways. One way is I'll share an example where I'll say like, well, I can look at my bookshelf right now and see 12 different books on sales. And it's not that they're 12 unique books on sales. They're 12 different takes on, you know, some core concepts when it comes to selling. The fact that these 11 exist doesn't mean that that 12th should never have been written. It's the author's viewpoint, the author pouring the content through themselves and creating something. If I did the amount of research that Brennan has done about freelancing and wrote a book about how to raise your freelancing rate, it'd be similar topics and similar concepts, but it'd be through my lens, through my own perception. So it's presenting a different product. So for a student who says, hey, there's somebody out there already doing something similar, I, I don't want to reach out to them. It's going to be competition. Well, is it really competition or is it just the two of you being in similar markets or in the same market and you find an opportunity to work together? There might be people who say, wow, I really resonate with your approach to teaching me this concept and I didn't really resonate with this person's approach. So filtering content, filtering these lessons through your own ideas, through your own perception, your own lens produces something different and doesn't make it a carbon copy of what already might be out there. In terms of reaching out to somebody who's in that same space, I think the same concept applies. It's presenting it as, well, hey, we're both really experts on this topic. Let's say it's freelancing or raising your rate. Wouldn't it be valuable to our audiences if we got together and had a conversation about this topic? Like, you know 90% of it. I know 90% of it. There's going to be a 10% we both don't know that we could fill in for each other's audience. And there's going to be this amazing area of overlap where suddenly we're able to say like, oh, you say A, I say B, I say C, and we could get really deep into it. So we could, we could frame it as competition, but we could also frame it as cooperation. What happens when we get two really smart people who are in the same problem space or in the same market together in a room and have them talk with each other? They get really deep into an exciting area. The same thing happens when you think about outreach to somebody in the same space as you. What cool thing could come of this collaboration? It's not necessarily me stealing your audience. It's not a scarcity principle. It's more an abundance principle. Somebody could be on your email list and my email list, and we're both talking about co-working, and they're like, oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm getting twice the co-working. This is valuable to me. Cool. Very cool. 
So we've got sort of a, a roadmap for our roadmap <laughs> in terms of being able to share it with someone like Brennan. Are there any other sort of you know outlying or adjacent approaches that we haven't talked about yet that, that you might think that we should take with, with a, new, a new giveaway, a new tool, a new platform like this? I think one thing that's really useful is looking at both people who are directly related to your industry and also indirectly or orthogonally related to your industry. So one example would be, let's say, Brian Harris, who runs Video Fruit and just had to launch for his product 10K subs, how to build a 10,000-person email list. Well, he's not directly in the build a product space. He's more how to build your email list. But once you have an email list, what do you want to do? Well, I, I want to sell something to these people. So by looking around and trying to identify people who might be generating an audience who end up in the problem space that you're solving, you're able to say like, well, hey, it might not be a direct one-to-one -one like linkage between, oh, I have this thing and they have this problem, but we could see that at some point in this person's life cycle or this audience member's life cycle, they'll have a need for something like this. That becomes an opportunity to reach out to people. So. For the example of the Year of Hustle Cheat Sheet, reaching out to authorities and influencers who have an audience focused on building a list or getting their site set up or building an audience or writing a book or you know recording screencasts, all these sort of things that are tangentially related but could feed into, well, hey, I have this content. How do I make a product? Those could be ancillary audiences that it makes sense to reach out to. And tactics there might be just Googling around and seeing like, well, hey, who's active in the how to make an email list space? Who's active in all of these different areas? I know uh, Paul Jarvis, I think a mutual friend of ours, just recently released a product on Chimp Essentials, how to use MailChimp to build your email list. And he and Jason Zook have partnered together on many a uh, list building and authority building product. Again, it's somebody who isn't directly related to the build a product space, but might make sense for a strategic partnership to say, well, we have this thing that your audience might need down the line. Can we work something out? Would this be valuable to your to your audience? And I always like framing it in terms of the value to the audience member, then the value to the person I'm reaching out to, and never really the value to myself. If I was in your position, I'd never pitch it to Brennan or Brian or anyone else as like, I want to grow my list and get more folks, you know, in in the trough or my launch coming up. Let's share this and build my list. I'd frame it as, hey, you've got a list of people who are engaged and active. Would they like to learn more about this topic? If so, here's a resource. Would this be valuable for them? So the assumption here, and I think it's a good one for anyone you'd actually want to be reaching out to collaborate with, is that they have a built-in motivation to help their audience as much as possible. So the one, two, three list that you just gave, which is priority number one, help their audience. Priority number two, have them look good by being there to introduce you to their audience. And then three is whatever benefits that you might gain from that. That's the one, two, three punch. Entirely. So this outreach strategy, I think, is super, super valuable. And I also like that for as soft as it is, it's, it's, there's a formula that you can follow. There's the soft outreach. There's the asking for permission. There's the sort of offer of multiple potential choices. A no is not necessarily a no. It's just not, an, it's just a not now or not in that way. All of these elements can be put together into any number of combinations. So the last thing that I'm thinking about, uh, is follow through. And let's say we get the person to say yes. And whatever the format is, whether it's a podcast interview, a guest post, uh, a tweet, whatever it is, there's all different scales and formats. 
what is the follow through? What happens next? And, and just to sort of quantify that a little bit, I'm thinking about how do I make that exchange translate into something for me? And mm-hmm. for them and for their audience. But ultimately, like, remember that I'm, I'm going to be giving value out there. Is there a way for me to make sure that this is adding to my efforts as well? That part of the follow through. And then also over the long term, how do you continue that relationship? What do you do to make sure that it's not just a one off, like you said before, where you're sort of doing a little round robin and just hitting everybody in the scene? You're going to show up in you know, people in these communities. We talk to each other. And so, how do you show up and continue to show up in that sort of genuine, generous way instead of that person who is always trying to um, hey, you know, wheel, a, wheel a new deal? How do we avoid that and stay in the generous mindset? I think that's the most important question of all. Uh, Alan Weiss, I believe it's Alan Weiss, has a wonderful quote about focusing on the fourth sale first, where when we're engaging with a client of the consulting world, it's not about the deal on the table today. It's about building the relationship and building the deal today so that we're we're priming the pump for the sale four down the line. And I pull that concept directly into the outreach world and say, well, when we're building this relationship, uh, I will literally say in emails to people like, I'm looking to build a long-term collaboration with you. I want this to be the first step in it. I'm not sure what step two or three might look like, but I'm starting this partnership with you or starting this conversation with you in the idea that there will be multiple ways for us to help each other down the line. And I think just explicitly saying that puts people at ease because you're making this promise in a sense like, hey, I'm here to help you. I know there's going to be opportunities for us to help promote each other. We'll figure out what those are down the line, but I'm sticking around. I'm not just here to get you to tweet about my thing and then disappear back to the back cave. I'm here to provide value to your audience, figure out how you could provide value to my audience and figure out what else might be there down the line. So just being, I think, intentional about that point, part of it, there's no real script or framework I have other than saying, if you go into it with the mental attitude of, I'm here to provide value in the long term for these relationships I'm building, it's going to end up being a relationship where where you will provide value in the long term for that partner. So there's no hack there other than be authentic, be honest, and go into it with that mindset. And it's brick stacking all the way down, right? It's that what's the small, you know, that first ask, and maybe maybe it comes from you know a, a hunger, and not necessarily a hunger in a good way, but like that showing up kind of starving. I always think of the analogy of what happens when you go to the grocery store hungry and you make all kinds of poor decisions. I think when you're, especially when you're first starting out, and when you have very little and other people have a lot, you go into those interactions sometimes a little bit too hungry, and that turns people off. Versus showing up and saying, "Look, I'm here to share. I don't have a lot to share, but I'm willing to share." the The offer doesn't need to be big in in order to be impactful, right? Sometimes, I mean, your first example was something as simple as saying thank you for a thing that you put out there. Here's what I got out of it. Here's what somebody else got out of it. When when you're someone who creates things and puts them into the world, you're met with all kinds of responses. But uh, the ones that really stand out and make your day are the ones where somebody just says, hey, thanks for sharing that. It helped me or helped someone that I care about. That really could be as small as it needs to be for that initial offer that initial outreach entirely i received an unsolicited email from somebody who found my blog at wraudience.com last night and it was all caps one line kai your blog is effing amazing 
And I, I had this huge grin on my face and I replied back, I love you. You're amazing. What, what inspired this outpouring of like affection on your part? Thank you. And like at that point, if they followed up and said, I, found, I read this article, it was wonderful. It changed my mindset. Uh, I wrote a similar article. I wrote a response. Would you take a look at it? They've primed me in such a way just by reaching out and saying thank you and expressing like love and appreciation. I'd take an action on their part. It might not be a big action like send an email to your list promoting my joint venture, but a small action like, hey, would you tweet about this? Or can you think of two or three people who might have a need for a service that I provide or be interested in reading a chapter for my upcoming book? So just by starting that conversation from that point of generosity, it's easier to build off of that small ask. And who knows, from that small ask, you're able to level up to a larger ask. And what I found is always valuable, especially in the podcasting space and uh, really any sort of relationship is saying, well, what's something I could do that would help you? I always like ending podcast interviews where I'm a guest by saying, hey, can you tell me a little bit about who your ideal guest is? I want to see if there's anybody in my network who'd be a good fit for you. And the host is always like, oh, man, nobody ever asks that. Yeah, my ideal guest is A, B, and C. And I'm like, great. I'll think about it and send you a couple names. Uh, and by the way, can you think of one or two podcasts that would be a good fit for me after us after we just had this conversation? And so I've offered something up. I've invested. We spent time talking together. And now I'm able to make an ask that benefits me. But had I just come out at the end of that interview and said, can you think of two or three podcasts that'd be great for me, Alex? You'd be like, eh, maybe I'll get back to you. When we frame it in terms of how could I help you? Who would be a good guest for you? Who in my Rolodex would you love to have on your show? And then, well, hey, can you think of a show that'd be good for me? It feels like an equal trade. It doesn't feel like I'm asking to take. It feels like I'm giving and then asking for something, not in return, but of equal value. Super, super cool. I totally agree. I have one more question, and this one's sort of out of left field, so I hope you'll indulge me. I know that when, when we do the kind of work for, you know, for clients and for partners and things like that, we don't always get to do all of the things that we want to do because of their own apprehensions and things like that. So I'm curious, in your own work, is there anything sort of experimental that you're doing or that you've tried that's worked really well in terms of doing outreach on behalf of yourself? Anything that you haven't necessarily been able to do with a client yet, but you would like to, they just aren't ready to buy in, or you just haven't had a chance to apply it yet? There's two things I really want to try for clients or, and for myself. I want to start sending handwritten letters as a way to initiate the outreach process. And I have terrible handwriting. And thank gosh, there are software as a service companies out there that do handwriting as a service for you. But I think that'd be an interesting way to break out of the, hey, I contacted you on Twitter. Or, hey, I emailed you frame and say like, well, hey, like you have a business address on your website. I'm going to send you a handwritten note and just say like, hey, Alex, thanks so much for putting out everything you do. Thanks so much for recording episodes of Stacking the Bricks. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kai. And if a note like that showed up in my inbox, like my physical inbox outside of my house, I'd be like, oh my gosh, who is this person? Who wrote me? This is so wonderful. I want to thank them. And it just feels like it sort of breaks the, ex the expected frame of how we'd interact or how we thank somebody that it shocks them into something new. I haven't had a chance to run that with a client yet, and I haven't done it myself yet, but it's an area that I think is really fruitful. How could we cross over from just digital outreach to interesting real-world outreach? For clients who have a physical book, I'd love to start doing campaigns where it's like, hey, great, uh, here's a, you know, it was great talking with you or being on your podcast. Here's a copy of my book and have a personal handwritten inscription on the front of it saying like, thank you so much, blah, blah, blah. And just figuring out ways to go above and beyond, deliver more value, d deliver essentially a gift to somebody and say, thank you for honoring me with your time. That's awesome. 
I love it. Kai, this has been so much fun. Long, long, long overdue. We've been trying to do this for like a year. And the plot twist in all of this is I'm going to be seeing you in like less than a month, right? Well, we're going to be at Bacon Biz together, and I'm so excited. So so that'll be awesome. Cool. Um, well, this is great. How do people that are listening to Stacking the Bricks find out about you and catch up with what you're doing? I'd say there's two great ways to do that. The first is I have a free course on outreach. If you go to freeoutreachcourse.com, you could get a five-email, five-lesson series on the outreach principles I we've talked about on this episode and I uh, evangelize for people. Uh, the other great way to get in touch with me is to go to wyouraudience.com forward slash AMA. I have a running Ask Me Anything page on my site where people could just ask me any questions about outreach or marketing or consulting or what goes on a taco. And in 24 to 48 hours, I'll respond and we could start having a conversation there. And I like having those conversations in public just to create a sort of public repository of knowledge. So wait, so what does go on a taco? What's, what's, your, oh, what's your favorite taco? My favorite taco would probably be pulled pork with some guacamole, some lettuce, uh, uh, anything could go on a taco. I'm, I'm a big fan of tacos. Patterson is doing tacos on day two of Bacon Biz, so. I'm flying to Philly tomorrow. <laughs> Just... Cool. We need to taste test these tacos. Okay, we'll, we'll have, maybe you can come in a day early. Cool, Kai, this was great. Thank you so much. Uh, for, for taking the time for sharing all of this. And I think you've given us some good ideas for sharing Year of Hustle as well. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for having me on. And thank you to the listeners for uh, taking the time to listen to this episode. Awesome. Cheers, brother.